0: Okay, so um, open your Bibles to two places. Um, start with the book of Mark, but then you'll want to be also in Acts, um, so you can kind of put your finger in in Acts. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, you can encroach on the person next to you, and I'll have a lot of the scriptures up on the screen, as well. Part of life, part of life, is learning to let go of things. You have to let go of of things. Sometimes the things that you have to let go of are actually good things. Sometimes the things you have to let go of are not such good things. Um, I just came up with a few things here that I've had to let go of as time has gone on. So here's, here's a few of them. The first one, if I can get this to work here. There you go. Those are called parachute pants. Does anybody remember parachute pants? Just so you know, if you can't tell, that is actually not me. So. Uh, so uh, I couldn't find a picture with me wearing parachute pants, but when I was in middle school, parachute pants were all the thing, and um, we would wear them quite often. Okay, another thing that I had to give up was the mullet. Um, that was real real popular. All my middle school and high school pictures, I had a mullet, and you might want ask why well, I don't have one now. Um, And, uh, the, 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 last, the last thing I've got a list here, and you probably have your own list, this is a more difficult thing that I've had to get up with, uh, give up as time has gone along. Um, In life we have to give up things sometimes the things that we have to give up are goofy and silly like this stuff and other times the things that we have to give up are a little more serious it can be past failures hurt bitterness towards other people maybe it's a relationship that is unhealthy Uh, expectations that you might have about uh, finances or future we have to learn to give those things up so for me one of the things i have had to learn to give up is the conventional wisdom when it comes to preparing sermon series. See, one of the things I'm wrestling with and was over the last three, four months was when it comes to sermon series, the conventional wisdom says a series should go from like six weeks to 12 weeks uh, because if it's less than six weeks, you can't really get enough momentum uh, to get any kind of theme through and, and major message through. And if it's more than 12 weeks, then the congregation wants to punch you in the throat because it feels like it's going on too long. Um, that that being said, um, we're going to in, enter into this sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. And as I looked at the Gospel of Mark, I originally said, well, I want it to stretch up until Easter. And I counted the, 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 the weeks, and it was only 15 weeks. And that was before we lost the last two weeks. So now it's 13 weeks. And when I broke out the text of Matthew, the, the sermon, if I wasn't going to leave things out, it was actually going to be closer to about 70 weeks. And uh, And so... What do we do with that? Um, what we do with that is we open God's Word and we get comfortable with the book of Mark. And I let go of the idea that um, this sermon series is not going to only be 12 weeks long. It's going to be a little bit longer than that. And, uh, and I, and I want to just encourage all of you to get comfortable with that. And there's a number of reasons why this is so important for us as we go into the gospel of Mark. And, and the first one is, as a church, our purpose, really, our purpose is to reach with the Gospel, the people in our lives that are close to us but are far from him that 's our purpose that's I mean we know whether or not we are succeeding as a church if we are proclaiming in many different fashions the Gospel of Jesus Christ to our families, to the town of Yakult, and to ourselves. So that's really our purpose. The book of Mark will really equip us, challenge us in this because we get a very special and unique look at the person of Jesus as well as the work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Um, Another major theme that I love in the Gospel of Mark that we see over and over again is forgiveness and restoration. And we live in a world that desperately needs that message over and over again of forgiveness and restoration. And then lastly, there's a lot of reasons, but the last one I'm going to bring up here is within Mark, there is a focus on embracing rejection and persecution. I hope you got that. There's a strong focus in this book on embracing rejection and persecution. If we are going to, as a church, be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am absolutely convinced, because we have 2,000 years of history of this being the case, especially in a world that is more and more hostile to Jesus and the gospel that we proclaim, it is going to mean that there is going to be a rejection and persecution that would come our way. That was very much what was happening to the early church in the day that this book was written, and Mark had that on, a, on his mind because of the Roman persecution to the Christians, and we'll talk more about that. So so today is really just kind of an entry overview of the book of Mark. For me, it's kind of like a, a geek fest. I get to kind of give some information about the book. And more specifically, it says lessons from Mark. I'm actually not talking about lessons from the book of Mark as much as the man of Mark. I want to look at Mark this morning and and you get a picture of the guy who wrote this, why he wrote this, who he was, what he was about, what was his life like. And I find that it's very applicable for us today. So we're going to start with a few things. I want to start with his name. Now in here, it's Mark, but his, his birth name was Johanan or Johanan, which is John. It's Jewish. It's his Hebrew name. John. So that's his actual birth name by blood. His second name that was given to him is Marcus, or what we are shortening to Mark. And the reason why it was given to him was because, unlike today, something unique in their culture, and actually it's only been um, the last four or five hundred years where last names were commonplace in societies. But back in Bible times, there weren't last names. There weren't surnames. There were more like nicknames. And so in this particular case, Marcus comes because he was born in the the region of northern Egypt, Libya, up in there, and that's a region called Alexandria. It was... Roman rule, Latin speaking, and so Marcus is a Latin name that shows his Roman uh, or his Alexandrian roots. So he's given this name like John Mark. A lot of times he's referred to in scripture as John Mark. It's important to know that because a lot of the scriptures that talk about him later in the New Testament refer to him as John Mark. But it's not uncommon for that to take place in those times because they would take the first name that was given and then attach like a geographical name or a job name to it. Like you've heard Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the carpenter. You've heard Max, or Matthew the tax collector, or like we're going to talk about next week, John the baptizer. So it's not uncommon, but here it's John Mark. He also had two other nicknames. One was the evangelist, and that's because he plants the church and is the father of church in Alexandria, that Roman colony. And then the next one, which I think is cool and fun, is Calabadoctolus. Anybody ever heard that word before? Calabodactylus? Okay, that stands for stubby finger. That's what that means. That was his nickname. It's nowhere in scripture, but it's found in a lot of the the historical writings, the non-biblical historical writings. And they say he was named stubby finger because he either was born with the birth defect and had stubby fingers, or he lost a digit when doing whatever they do in that day and age, you know, running a piece of equipment or a knife or something. So they call them stubby finger. I can just imagine what his siblings would have been. You know, I have nicknames that aren't, that I can't share out loud that my siblings gave me. And that may be one that, that he was given by his nicknames. Um, so anyway, this, this guy, Mark, he has all kinds of different names, but how do we know that the this gospel was written by him? How do we know that? Well, um, there's two, there's two ways. These two names are going to come up through this series. Um, One is from a guy named, it's said a lot of different ways, Eusebius is the way that I'll refer to it. He is one of the earliest church historians. And then the other guy is a guy named Josephus, pretty popular. These guys would write history books based upon the time when the early church was, was being founded. And all of their writings point to Mark as the author. What's cooler, though, is this next one. The next thing that we, we notice is there's a hidden clue within the text of our Bibles as to who wrote this, and it's a fun story. It kind of gives us a behind-the-scenes look. It was not uncommon for authors in biblical times or in authors or movie makers today to give themselves a secretive role within their movies or a secretive role within their texts. And in the the Gospel of Mark specifically, we find a spot where most scholars agree that Mark is found hidden. And, And what's neat about this is that if you're not paying attention or you're just reading quickly, you can read right over a little detail like this and miss it. And there's a reason why, and we'll get there in just a minute. But I want, if you're in Mark, you can turn to Mark 14 or you can look here, and it says this. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, as it's cool as it's cool this is, what's going on here is that Mark is, was believed that his dad owned the Garden of Gethsemane. He was a rich Roman guy that owned the Garden of Gethsemane. And the room where the Last Supper took place was in Mark's home, his parents' home. He was a teenager at the time. He was like middle school, high school age. And you can almost just envision what was going on. Jesus is, is with his disciples, his boys, at one of the most intimate times of the Last Supper, where all these amazing things happen in this Last Supper. He predicts, he predicts Peter's denial of him. And, and you can almost envision Mark that has got a bed sheet wrapped around him, around the corner, eavesdropping on Jesus and the disciples of what's going on here. And then suddenly they get up. And they head out, as we see through other gospel stories, they head out to this Garden of Gethsemane. And you can almost envision Mark, the teenager, who's being mischievous maybe, follows them from a distance and kind of hides behind a tree and, and watches what's going on. And then one of the things that's neat is we find a lot of recordings within the gospels where you, if you, you read them, you ask, how in the world do we know those details? Well, it's believed that Mark was the first gospel ever written. He was there, according to this, this theory, he was there watching and eavesdropping and listening to what was going on, and not knowing that he was going to write this gospel later on, but that's how we have those details. And, and so here he is, he's eavesdropping on the conversation, and then here comes Judas with the guards, he goes up and he kisses Jesus' face. And then kind of mayhem breaks out, and we know kind of what, what happens from some of that, and in that mayhem he 's like, "Oh boy, I probably should get out of here i 'm going to get grounded or something." And so he tries to get away, and a young man's wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving behind his garment.' just kind of a, a neat behind-the-scenes story that when you get into some of, the, some of the text and you look at some of the history that's behind it, you, you, you can rebuy it and, and not get that. But I think kind of the more important thing that I'd like to get at here is that there's really no doubt that Mark wrote this gospel, but you'll notice he doesn't anywhere say that he is the guy. And why is that? And this is the first thing, if you have notes, this is the first fill-in-the-blank. And it's, it's this, Mark kept a clear focus on Jesus rather than on himself. Throughout this gospel, we see Mark constantly putting the focus and the, the attention on the person and the work of Christ Jesus. And it's a great lesson, I believe, for us as a church, for us as individuals specifically, that, that we have this temptation oftentimes in our lives, and social media does not help us with this, but to bring attention to self to magnify and glorify self rather than the person and the work of Jesus. And so when we as a church, we we make ministry decisions, hopefully what's driving those decisions is the glorification, the spotlight upon who Jesus is and what he would have us do and how we can make him great to this community. So when we talk about building a new church building on our property over here, it's not because we want the biggest, best building. It's because we believe at a core level it will equip us to proclaim the gospel. It will equip us to reach our mission, um, which is to reach with the gospel those who are, Far from Christ, but close to us. So when we make decisions as individuals, it would be awesome if we had this same focus that Mark has in, in keeping the focus on him and not the focus on ourselves. Growing as a church requires some change. We have experienced it even this morning, the difficulty. I promise you this, because I'll probably get a phone call or two this week. There are people that will call and say they came to church but there was nowhere to park or they they didn't have a place to sit and so they, they just kept driving. Um, I get those calls more often than I'd like to hear, and I'm appreciative that they do, but see, as a church, we need to kind of deal with some of these growing pains, and why do we do? Why do Why we make change? Because we don't like change, do we? <laughs> Most people don't like change, but we make those changes because we want to accomplish our mission. One of the ways, I'm bringing this up for a purpose by the way, in a few weeks um, we are going to be shifting this, this room. The elders and the deacons have looked, and we can fit more comfortably about 40 more chairs in here if we change the focus to the cross, which is where it should be anyway. And we're going to, we're going to go down here and look this way. And what I I bring this up because as individuals here at this church, um, I want us to be prepared for the change. The change isn't because we're trying to be hip, trendy, and cool. The change is because we want to accomplish our mission as a church and make this as available of a worship time for everybody. If we have to down the road, go to two services, praise God. We have to do that. We're not doing it because we're trying to become a megachurch. We're doing it because we're being faithful to proclaim the message of the gospel. This is what Mark was all about when he wrote this book, and it better be what we're all about in our individual lives and as our church life. This is how we make decisions and why we make decisions, to honor and look and lift up Jesus. So, moving on. You can tell I haven't preached for two weeks. I'm just like, like, whew, I need, I need a nap. <laughs> what? A of I do have enough energy. Uh, so the good thing is I'm I'm a, a week or two ahead on my sermons. So um, we can have things like floods, and it's not so detrimental to my time. All right. So anyhow, uh, moving on. According to, to to Acts chapter 12, let's look a little bit about where Mark was in his life at the time when when he was writing this. Um, if you look at Acts chapter 12. Uh, one thing that we find, and we'll read it here in just a minute, but Mark's home, the home that his parents raised him in, was a home that was a center of church activity. He was surrounded oftentimes by the faith of God's people, and it was in this home, this very home that where it's believed the Last Supper was taking place, and right outside the Garden of Gethsemane, it was in this home where one of the most famous prayer meetings was was taking place. Um, and so we can read there, um, you can look at Acts chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. It says this, Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angels and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything that Jewish people were hoping would happen. He's just been miraculously broken out of prison by an angel. And so this is, this is kind of him going, what in the world just happened? Um, Verse 12 says, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, John, Mark, our John here, where many people had gathered and many people were praying. Uh, The point here, and it's number two in your notes, the, the house, the kind of house that Mark grew up in, it was a haven for prayer. Prayer took place in this house. It was evident throughout the New Testament. This is where people came to gather and pray, and it's just a question I want to ask us individually walking away from this. Uh, what kind of house, what kind of home do you live in? Do you live in a home where it could be marked by this particular con- concept, that you, you make sure that your home is a home that is dedicated to prayer? Is your home the kind of home that the Spirit of God dwells? is you 're the, you're the home where where ministry takes place where you you see your dinner table, the time you have with your children, the time you have to invite neighbors and friends over as primary ministry opportunity is this the kind of home that that, that you live in, that I live in, and, and I think of myself and I think of my busy life and I can oftentimes think of my faith as, as sometimes just boiling down to this Sunday morning service when, when ultimately this purpose here for you to come, we proclaim the gospel, but if you're a believer, it's to get ourselves equipped and sometimes kicked in the fanny to be opening our homes up, letting our homes be a haven for prayer, letting our homes be a haven for gospel work to take place. Is that the kind of home that you live in? I know that for my home it's a struggle. I, I struggle because of the, the intoxication of technology and so easily so easily things that lord over my life have more to do with with screen content, visual content than it does opening up God's word, kneeling down with my family and praying. It's a major issue. And I just believe that if we're going to be faithful to the mission that God's called us here, not just at this church, but a bigger picture, a bigger purpose, we have to be men and women of prayer, young and old. We have to dedicate ourselves to that. Um, And so... Uh, we can look here, Jesus, oh, there's a couple quotes. This is a quote from a guy named Jack Graham. He says, Satan's primary weapon to stop the believer, to seduce the believer, to neutralize the effectiveness of the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is the weapon of, of compromise. Compromise slips into our lives so easily, so easily. Uh, Jesus spoke about it in this book, recorded in Mark. It says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the, the fire never goes out. What kind of home is it that you are raising up, that you are providing? What kind of environment is is that? Mark's home was one where it was a haven of prayer, haven for the people of God to gather. And I would hope that for us too, that would be what we would see our homes as. Our family is, just personally, the way we've wrestled with this is we want to open up our home most Sunday afternoons and evenings to have different people from the church family over to just to, to eat with us, to have dinner with us. It's one of those things where we're trying to apply this very, this very passage. Um, so, let's move on. Um, Mark, interesting. Um, there is a, a lot to do with Mark. Mark had a job that was pretty interesting. Interesting. He didn't just write this, this book. Some stuff took place in his life earlier. And one of the things that took place earlier in his life was that he had an opportunity to, um, to, to serve God, serve church by serving other people. I want to look here now at Acts chapter 13. Ah, I put that wrong. It's Acts 13, not Mark 13. And it says this, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work at which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And this is what I want you to focus on. And they also had John, Mark, as their helper. Now that word helper can be translated attendant. Uh, This is not a glamorous job in that culture. Basically, Mark, John Mark, the man who wrote this book, he was called to be their dishwasher, their cook, he kept their bed mats intact. He took care of the basic things so that Paul and Barnabas would be able to go out and do the specific giftings of ministry that they were able to do. But when you think about this for a minute, John Mark, was, he was a, an integral part of the very first ever missionary team ever. Uh, so he was able to go out, and that's kind of an exciting thing. We have missionaries. I met yesterday with Vance Johnson, who was um, a retiring missionary for the Philippines. And uh, we have missionaries. That term is so common to most people. But in this day, he was part of the very first missionary team. And, and yet he was called here as an attendant. And, and the point number three in your notes is God's kingdom has great need for faithful helpers. For faithful helpers, oftentimes um, what I hear people say is, I'm just a, and then they'll say, I'm just a greeter, or I'm just a, and they'll fill in the blank and put their ministry um, role there. John Mark here was just a helper. He was just an attendant. And look at what his life ended up accomplishing. He ended up writing this, this gospel of, of Mark and accomplishing a lot of things. And he was able to do it in a pretty powerful, powerful way. Um, one of the key verses that he talks about is Mark 10:45. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know what your role is specifically, but what an opportunity that, that we have to, to come along and, and uh, serve as a helper. Not all of us certainly are called to stand up here and preach like I'm doing right now, but all of us are called to go out and proclaim. And we do that in simple ways um, by serving and helping. Okay, so want to jump down here. Next up, Acts thirteen thirteen. It says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea in Pamphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This is something that you can, again, like chapter 14 where he was stripped naked and ran away in the dark in, in, uh, without any clothes on. It's the same kind of thing here with Mark. If we weren't careful in noticing what this verse says. We've heard all the great stuff up until this point about Mark, but something major happened in his ministry, and this is what it was. He left Paul and Barnabas. They got to a place, and he left. He ditched them. He deserted them. <coughs> and uh, and uh, it's really really an interesting thing that this word left is translated to desert. That is to leave someone in the lurch. So here they are, they're doing important ministry work, and he just zips off and, and leaves them. There's no clear indication why that could happen. <coughs> Excuse me. No clear indication. There's two. One was jealousy. See, Barnabas was Mark's uncle. And all the way up until Acts 13, it was Barnabas who was creme de la creme missionary dude. He was the guy that all of the people looked at. He was the lead missionary. He was the lead dude of the church. But after Acts 13, when Paul had come onto the scene, now Paul is always listed at the top of those names. And so some scholars think that Mark was jealous or bitter because his uncle now was second fiddle to, to Paul. I don't know if that's true or not. Another one that is pretty interesting is um, failed expectations. And I think this one may be more likely, just because I've experienced this in my own life many times, where here he is, he's setting out on this exciting work, as a missionary, with Paul and Barnabas, these awesome guys. And what he ends up doing is he gets on the mission field, and it's not as cool as he thought it would be. I mean, it's not as amazing, it's not as as sexy of a job assignment. And so he gets out there, and he thought it was going to be this exciting time where everything was always going to be happening, and all these miracles were always going to take place. And his expectations were then left let down. And so he finds himself kind of just thinking, well, this isn't what I hoped it would be. And uh, so he he quits, and, and he, he walks away. I think that's probably more likely just because I see that happen a lot in, in church life. I see people go through times where church life isn't exciting, or they don't have that first love that they did when they first came to Christ, and they don't have that high, and then all of a sudden they're gone. It's not as fun as it was anymore, probably because they're not engaged in ministry. They're wanting to be served, which maybe was the case with Mark. Uh, but when we when we look at this, when we look at mark he he got fed up for one reason or another, and he he bolted and what we find every time something like this happens, every time someone deserts the team, walks away, it affects everyone else you 're awesome, thanks, Eric. Um, it affects somebody else. Quitting always affects more people than just ourselves. Oftentimes when people walk out on something, they're thinking they're thinking, you know, it, about themselves specifically. But what I find when it comes to quitting is that there is a there's a shrapnel of of hurt that is left in other people's lives. And so we see that here in in Acts again, Acts chapter 15, it says this. Sometime later Paul and Barnabas let us said let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise. But Paul did not think it wise because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement. This is Paul and Barnabas that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left from there. Mark's choice to desert his, his compadres on the mission led to this dis, sharp disagreement. Now, God redeemed it, and he used both of these missionary teams. But I don't know if Paul would have, or Mark would have realized his leaving would cause this major rift um, to the point of, of discouragement and splitting up. The exciting thing or encouraging thing about this is what ends up happening just a little bit later as we go along. And, and that's this, that, that oftentimes, oftentimes when there's disagreements between two people and it feels at the time like there's no way that they can ever get along, um, down the road they come back together. Um, I don't know if you have people like this in your life. I have people like this in my life where we have a strong disagreement about something. And it can be in this case. It can be about philosophy of ministry. I can think of many people that that I'm no longer fellowshipping with or haven't fellowshipped with because um, we disagree strongly on the way to go about accomplishing the purpose of God's mission. And and sometimes those are my fault and sometimes they're their fault. I think it's probably more often their fault than it is my fault. But hey, uh, that's just me. Uh, no, but that happens. But when I see this, um, I know what. The end of this story is, and we're about to see it right here, um, and this is the last point in your notes, and it's this, that Mark, he allowed failure to be his teacher. One of the most important aspects to following Christ is not being fearful of failing, or at least not letting failure keep us down. There's a great book by John Maxwell that's, that's called F- um, Failing Forward. And one of my one of my favorite youth bands, He was out of Albany when I was a youth pastor, was a youth. A, a, group called Falling Up. I don't think they're around anymore. Um, but Falling Forward, Failing Forward, Falling Up. Um, Mark allowed his failure to be his teacher. And again, we don't really know that because Mark doesn't himself tell us about his life because his focus was completely on Jesus. But when we read the rest of the Bible, we get to see it. And in Philemon, you don't have to turn there if you don't like, but Philemon, um, it says this. It says, um, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you as do Mark, Artychicus, Demas, Luke and my fellow workers. Now what's interesting, he says my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you as do Mark and then this other list. This was written 18 years after this fight that took place between Paul and Barnabas. and And so if we didn't pay attention to that we wouldn't know, we would just think that Mark deserted them. But here... Paul does something pretty major, and he calls him his fellow worker. In 2 Timothy 9, it says this Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Cressern has gone to Galatia, Titus to Delamia. Only Luke is with me. And this is key. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Mark may have had a pretty significant walking away, quitting. Uh, but the end of his story wasn't written there. He, he came back. He allowed his failure to be his teacher to the point where Paul calls him a fellow prisoner 18 years later. So they were able to reconcile, and, and it was in that time frame we also get this, what is known to be our first gospel, even though it's not first in order. It's thought to be the first gospel that both Luke and Matthew used to write their gospels, at least record a lot of their details for. Um, as we, as we kind of wrap up this, Mark went on to be um, the leader of the church in the hometown he grew up in. He was the leader of the church. He was known as Mark the Evangelist. Um, it was one Easter Sunday. He was in church like this, and he was proclaiming the good news of Jesus, letting, letting the people of that very uh, hostile Roman world, um, letting them know that they are loved, that they are loved by God so much so that God sent his son Jesus so that the righteousness and the blood of Jesus could cover the sins of the people and pave way for them to be in God's kingdom, for them to be Christians, for them to go to heaven and to live a heavenly life. It was in that service where the Roman guards busted in, busted into the service in front of everybody and arrested him. They grabbed him. They wrapped a rope around his hands, and then they, for the rest of the day, they they just paraded him. They kind of tied him up to the back of a horse, and they walked around making fun of him. And uh, they did this all day long. That evening, they threw him in prison. Uh, He wasn't sure what was going to happen, but uh, that next day, they upped the ante a little bit. They tied the rope around his neck. And they tied him to the back of the horse, and they instead drug him to his death. They said that the only thing left, this is what Eusebius and Josephus wrote, as well as other historians. They said, by the time they were done dragging him around the streets, all that was left on the rope was his head and torso. Um, This is Mark. This is a man who went through his life... um, Lived life just like we live. He had the Calabodactylist nicknames. He he was a young boy, just like the rest of us. He was curious like most of us were in our our adolescence. He did silly things. Uh, He made a lot of mistakes. He got a lot of great opportunities. But he came back to the Lord at the end of his life. He made the most of it. He made the most of it. Who knew that, and I guarantee you he didn't know, he didn't know that some years later, some 2,000 years later, we would be here, talking about how he pointed people to Jesus. He didn't know that. He just wanted the light of Christ to shine upon on people, and he was going to make sure that that happened. And it led to his death. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen to us, um, but Mark certainly speaks in such a way, the primary word that he uses is the word immediately. He talks about the Christian faith as one that is required that we pay attention to. It's not a passive compartment of our lives. Our Christian faith is everything that we are to be about. It rises above our position in the home. It rises above our position at work. It rises above our position in the community. It rests solely on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. That is who we are called to be, first and foremost, is servants of the Master Jesus. And Mark is going to help us see that as we walk in. We're going to deal with John the Baptizer next week. So if you'd like to read um, over what Elias read this morning, that would be awesome. And let's